Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On December 31st, 2019, the World Health Organization's office in China heard the first reports of a previously unknown virus behind a number of pneumonia cases in the city of Wuhan. On March 11, 2020, that virus, now named COVID-19, better known as the coronavirus outbreak, was now characterized as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Today, the New York Times wrote, The number of known coronavirus cases in the United States continues to surge, As of Tuesday afternoon, at least 5,000 people in 49 states, plus Washington, D.C., and three U.S. territories have tested positive for the coronavirus. According to the New York Times database, at least 93 patients with the coronavirus have died. The pace of diagnosis is expected to quicken as the virus spreads and testing becomes more widely available. More state and private labs have started running tests for the coronavirus in recent days, increasing the capacity to identify new patients after weeks of delays and testing kits shortages. Today on Twitter, Speaker Pelosi said the Family First bill was about many things, but first and foremost, it's about testing, testing, testing. She urges senators to pass the legislation today to make testing free and to provide masks and make them available ASAP. While we wait on relief legislation to be passed by our federal government, the CDC have advised us to wash our hands often with soap and warm water for at least 20 seconds, to use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol if soap and water are not available, to cough or sneeze inside a tissue, or to cough and sneeze into your elbow but not your hand, to stay home as much as possible, and social distancing can help slow the spread. These are confusing and scary times. And so, like many of you, I wanted a bit more clarity about what this virus is and why it's so difficult to find a vaccine. So I turned to my friend, Dr. Hazel Levy, who is a virologist and a research scholar in the biomedical sciences, in STEM education, and in higher education policy. She was the first black American woman to have an independent and National Institutes of Health funded research laboratory in the history of the University of Florida's College of Medicine. Dr. Levy is a social justice community organizer, serving as the vice chair of the Woman of Color Caucus of National Women's Liberation, Gainesville, Florida chapter, and was the founding faculty advisor to UF's Black Women in Medicine student organization. Here is our conversation. 
So I think I told you that um, I had been watching a couple of virologists on television speak about uh, this virus, and a lot of them have kind of said a little bit about what they know, but a lot are unknown. Um, Can you just let me know what a virologist is and um, what it is that you do? So virologists generally are scientists that study viruses, and viruses vary so widely for basically every living thing. There's a different virus or a different set of viruses that can infect that living thing. You know, even inside of us, we have different kinds of cells, and different types of viruses can just infect certain types of cells and not others. So depending on what virus you study, um, like, for example, I study um parvoviruses and picornaviruses, and they're just tiny ones, and I'm interested in them because they're used, um, they're basically engineered to, uh, to be used as treatment strategies or as therapies. And so that's kind of the virology stance that I use is basically taking this thing, taking this, this um, basically in, in a case of parvoviruses it's like a protein shell that's sort of like spherically shaped with a little bit of nucleic acid on the inside in the case of parvos that it's dna on the inside and i'm basically trying to study that as best as you can to figure out how does it get into cells and in our case um the coronavirus or the parvoviruses that i work on do not cause a disease and so we try to engineer them so that they can uh for example attack cancer cells So virologists generally are scientists that study viruses, but there's so many viruses that your areas of expertise could really vary. So why has this virus in particular been so baffling? Because um, to me, this uh, this has been one that has, has really scared medical professions medical professionals. Um, it has left a lot of people baffled on, on how to attack it. Obviously uh, our American response has been a lot slower than in other countries. What, why do you think a disease like this one in particular, this virus has been so baffling? I, I think that um, it's highly infectious. And so the spread of it, the, pan- the, the quickness of its pandemic spread, I think is something that is surprising and alarming but moreover you don't really learn about a virus after until after it's kind of come and gone it's really difficult to know everything about it until sort of the 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 disease and the spread has kind of come on so that you can study everything right so you're sort of building the bike while you ride it when you are fighting something that is actually killing people right And so um, I think a lot of viruses we don't have adequate antivirals for. I don't think that that's really unique, to be honest. Um, And so uh, when something is novel or newly emerged, like in the case of this virus, which is believed to have been uh, transferred from other animals into humans, and and that's why it's novel, because it hadn't previously been passed into humans. Of course, the virus has been evolving for a very long time in whatever its host previously was, but something shifted just enough to where it could now get into human cells, right? So So people have have thought that this might have started from animals. Um, So that is 
very interesting to me. And the reason it's set, it's novel, it's because it's new. This is something because I think a lot of people are seeing this language around this virus and don't understand it. Um, yeah. You know. So novel meaning it's a newly emerged in humans. It doesn't mean it's not been around before, but that's how I see it as it just recently jumped from a different animal host to being able to infect. And so like you've probably seen images of the coronavirus, right? And it has these spikes that yes. come off of it. And those spikes basically determine which cells it can get into and out of. And it's made out of proteins. And then the proteins are encoded for by the genetic material that's inside. In the case of this coronavirus, it's RNA. So as the, as the genes, as the RNA of the virus um, evolve over time, those protein spikes will be different, right? And so essentially, uh, it, those spikes evolved in such a way where they were able to trick a human cell into allowing the virus in. That's wild. So those, that's, those little red dots around it, those are protein spikes then. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this particular virus has what's called an envelope, which has it's like it's a uh, a lipid membrane that's around it, and embedded in this lipid membrane are these protein spikes. And so okay. it's, it's an envelope. Most of the viruses I study are non-envelope viruses, uh, and so they you know the, they're they're very different. So people have talked about this being kind of similar to the flu, but much more deadly than the flu. How is it determined that it's similar to another virus? How, how is that determined? So I, I, my understanding with people saying it's similar is that it, it also causes like an upper respiratory uh, mm. disease, right? Um, right. And that also, so some of the symptoms, having a cough, having a fever, that's kind of flu-like. Also the transmission that it can be passed by um, human-to-human contact. So some of that, like it doesn't require like intravenous blood transfer, for example. So that's what I think people mean when they say that it's like the flu, but um, they're actually rather different uh, structurally and um, classification-wise different viruses. Now, people right now are, are they're starting some clinical trials. Um, why is it so difficult to try to come up with a vaccine like this? I don't think people understand why it's so difficult. Um, and So uh, this might be a little out of my wheelhouse, but I wouldn't mind just taking a stab at it just kind of because I, you know, finding a vaccine for something means you you are able to create a molecule of some sort that will trigger a person's immune response to attack this particular virus, right? Right. Um, I think some of the difficulty in making this is not so much the, the methodologies, but it's in the, um, the system, getting it approved and going through the, the sequence of trials, um, safety checks, and all of this takes a really long time and is uh, labor-intensive and expensive. So the process itself of getting something approved to be used in human beings um, in the United States anyway is, is, is in itself difficult, not to mention that the, the, the methodology to actually create the, um, the substance or the, the therapy or whatever. or the, the um... So in some cases we use viruses and we sort of 
inactivate them so that they're not infectious anymore. And then you still have some of these structural motifs. That's what you're trying to create antibodies against. So you expose a person to some piece of this virus, and then your body recognizes it and creates antibodies to fight it. So there's a recognition that goes on in your immune system when, um, when a, a uh, vaccine is used. Right. So or you could in some cases, you could just take a piece like I don't really know if this is what's going on, but you could take like some of those spike proteins and um, use that as the molecule that elicits the immune response from from people. So something about it, some physical piece of material that resembles the virus is probably going to be needed to to make a. uh, uh, To make a vaccine. And today was the first time I've heard of the word safety check, uh, actually, was um, in some of the trials, um, they were explaining it as making sure the person that was in the trial was checking on them to making sure they weren't having any adverse reactions. And I I guess that's why it's risky, because this is kind of an unknown what you're doing to someone. Um, How are you all you know, um, I'd say maybe some of your colleagues, how are you all discussing this right now? Um, I'm sure it's a hot topic, even for those, as you say, aren't specifically um, studying this virus. Um, What are some of the conversations that you're, you're having with maybe other virologists about this? Well, I know some work that's going on at the University of Florida right now. They're actually trying to look at molecules that exist already. So there's antivirals, which is something that you basically use to treat if you've already got this virus, right? Versus a um, vaccine that's used to make it so that your immune system can fight off uh, a virus when it encounters it, right? So it's two different things. Once you're sick, you're going to be treated with antivirals um, to help get rid of your system uh, symptoms and clear the virus out of you. But if you had a vaccine, that would kind of prevent you from getting infected, right? So um, so there is some work going on right now at the University of Florida. We're looking at molecules that can be used as antivirals, as therapies for sick people. And what they're looking at are molecules that are already FDA approved to treat other viruses, right? So there's all kinds of molecules that are out there, all kinds of therapies that are used to treat different diseases, right? So what would be great, what would be best if we could find um, something that's already been approved, already gone through safety trials in people that could also be used to combat this particular virus, maybe one molecule or a combination of, of a few um, therapies together, um, that would be ideal. So that's some of the discussion that I've been hearing is what do we have already in our arsenal that we haven't thought to use against this novel coronavirus that we've never encountered before? So there was... Um... Um, uh, Dr. Richard Hatcher, he's from the Coalition for um, Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and he said that this is the most frightening disease he had ever encountered in his career, and he included Ebola, MERS, and SARS. And he says it's frightening because of the combination of infectiousness and lethality that appears to be manifold higher than the flu. What are some of your personal concerns that you felt about this disease? My concern as someone who would kind of want to, like, protect herself and her community with information and knowledge, like the, the lack of testing I find to be problematic and that and like 
to me, it's a little, it's like unscientific in a way when we're dealing with a pandemic to not like get as many people tested as possible. Like waiting for people to have symptoms to present uh, and then to have them come in and be tested to confirm cases. I don't see that how, I don't see that as a great strategy for curbing a pandemic spread. I feel like throwing a large net, seeing which healthy people are carrying uh, the virus um, seems to me to be a better strategy, right? So that, right. I don't know. I think right. different states are, are that, that I think different sense. states yeah. are dealing with it differently, but it feels like here in the state of Florida, you can't just go, me and my daughter and my um, partner can't just go out and get tested right now and say, okay, we're good. So we, we can go, um, you know, help other people or, or we can just be counted as folks that don't, that aren't spreading this at this point. Right. Um, but that's not what's being, that's right. not what's happening right now. We really don't know how many people. So like, it's, it's impossible to really know what, at what rate does this, does this virus cause disease? Like how many of us are asymptomatic? We don't know that unless we test more of us. Um, how deadly is this virus? Who's, who's sick with it? How, how can we really count that unless we're doing more widespread testing? So we can figure out, um, how many people have it and then how many people are, are, are getting really sick or, or dying from it, right? Until you have a larger net cast, it's impossible to even really make those numbers. So Robert Klein, I believe his last name is, um, he's uh, the ex-Ebola czar for, for Obama's White House, said, we are seeing a failure of competence and confidence that we're far behind other countries in testing. Um, and if I were back in my old job in the White House, I'd be pushing for us to do 30 million tests. Um, so as you said, you'd want to kind of see right now and as part of testing who who is healthy right now or even why. I mean, they've discussed that children have been asymptomatic, um, but that are, are carriers right now. Um, what would your ideal protocol be? You you kind of listed a little bit what you would, you would start with. What, what are some of the other tools you think that you would try to enact if you were in a position to to be able to um, to be able to implement those? Well, one of my main concerns right now is like the economic burden on people. I'm concerned for people's physical uh, health and safety, but I'm also concerned for the economic burden on people that um, work for hourly wages, people that are small business owners, and um, people in the service industry. So so one thing I would love to see happen, this, if, I, if I ruled the world, is to have all these kids tested. All these kids that aren't in school right now, I would love right. to see them all tested, because I would sure really like to send them back to school and then to send them home, send them to school, home, test everyone, get them in, send them to school and home, and then, and then, uh, you know, test them regularly. Because that, that to me, I think people can do their jobs better, or they can help each other better, or healthcare workers can do their jobs better if our kids who aren't getting sick from this are, are being taken care of. 
Yes, absolutely. And I'm trying to figure out too why there are so many obstacles in testing. I know that there is a power struggle at, at the federal level of our government right now and that we had been offered um, tests, I believe, from the German government. Um, and I know that Trump had looked at buying some patents for them that would only be um, here in America. But other than that, what possible reason could there be for not having tests everywhere is it i mean i don't know if you i don't know. understand it okay yeah it's because a really good question because i mean I, I appreciate so this is an rna virus okay so getting the rna out of an rna virus is not trivial rna is not as sturdy and hardy as dna is so that's kind of the first thing is you have to find a way to get this rna intact out of the i, I see that that could be an obstacle for a, a really easy test. But um, right now the protocols are PCR-based tests, which is a molecular method where you, I mean, the sequence uh, of this virus has been known. Um, creating primers is what they're called, these small little pieces of DNA that you need to kind of target the virus in, in order to kind of um, test for it, it, its presence. Uh, those are really not expensive to make. Um, the enzymes that you need to run these tests, those are a bit more expensive. Like, I, it's really not clear to me what are the real obstacles to this. I feel like people could make this in their labs, like, and what kind of throughput can, I mean, these are sort of methods that are widely used and, and right. understood, you know, PCR-based methods. And so I, I don't really get what is the hang-up, why we can't have more widespread testing. I don't either, and it's been, it's been frustrating. Would you mind also um, explaining again, just touching on DNA versus RNA? I mean, I, I know it's an RNA you said before, it's like a single strand. Uh, I just want to make sure that my listeners understand the difference between that. So, this, uh, so DNA and RNA are both um, nucleic acids. They're both genetic material. And normally in your cells, in yours and my cells, um, our DNA is sort of stored or housed in the nucleus, right? And that's where it's kind of kept. And, um, but the action of the DNA does not reside inside the nucleus. We need proteins to get made all over the cell and even to be removed from the cell at some point, right? So the, the product of genes are DNA or our proteins. That's how genes get carried out through the action of proteins. And so we rely on RNA to be like, so the kind of the way I tell my students, it's like you have this library of books, right? Well, when you need to uh, take an exam, you don't need every single book from the library, right? You just need this volume or that. The RNA kind of makes a copy of whatever genes are needed right then. You don't need every single gene to be working in every cell at all times. That's actually what distinguishes different cell types. Certain cells are using some of your genes and other cells are using other kind of collections of your genes. That's why we have so many kinds of cells um, because we're using different collections of genes in these different cell types. So the point I'm trying to make is that you rely on RNA to basically translate those genes in the nucleus into some action out in the cytoplasm. So it's, it's uh, out in the cytoplasm beyond the nucleus inside your cell where RNA actually gets translated into protein. Okay. And so RNA by nature is a temporary molecule. You don't always need the same proteins to be made. It has like a half-life uh, by nature. So it's a more easily degraded molecule than DNA, which is a lot more... Stable. And so that's what I say is one of the 
I can see as one of the hurdles to um, making this test really uh, cheap, I guess, is that it's uh, it, maybe it's expensive to isolate that RNA and keep it in, intact um, before we enter into the PCR process. And so that is probably the main reason, if there is a reason why it's harder to get these tests. is, is I really point. don't think so. I'm stretching really hard to come up with a reason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Basically, we should have all these tests and that other countries I think have so. them, you know? Well, and... I mean, my, my husband is an economist and he was making a really good point last night that we've actually been seeing sort of economic growth since the... Uh, since the, that, the, the previous recession uh, or the, the larger recession. And like, it's just amazing that we have no social safety net now. Like we're just, it's, it's being exposed so clearly that we don't have that. Like we could have been being prepared for um, something like this, but instead we, we, have, we don't have social safety nets for people, including healthcare. Absolutely. The social safety nets had been diminished and, uh, and almost non-existent in some areas. And then also he cut the pandemic, Trump cut the pandemic response team apparently in 2018. So there wasn't um, a couple of huge things in place for something like this. And, and just so that my audience knows, when does a, when does um, a virus or disease, when is it considered a pandemic? And I know that it is considered now, but when does that classification come into being? I don't know the exact, um, like, you know, what the exact classification is, but my understanding is that it's globally spread. Like, I feel like epidemics is mm -hmm. like more region, regional specific and pandemic kind of means that we have right. a, a bunch of linked epidemics of the same um, virus. That makes sense. I just like to for us to be kind of rooted in in these uh, understandings. I think that sometimes during this kind of crazy time, words get thrown around, but people don't get to sit and think what was actually going on. Um, so right now, how do you think Florida has handled this um, this response right now? Because in New York, um, our, our governor has been getting a lot of praise for doing kind of daily briefings and, and treating this very seriously. Although I think we have the most reported cases right now. Um, the death rate is, is lower, but it's still, um, you know, it's still high in, in keeping with the numbers of this disease. How, how has Florida's response do you feel has been so far? Well, the response, primarily has been to shut things down and to focus on individual people's behavior, uh, social distancing. Um, and I think that we should be doing wider testing for people. And I think right. that getting kids back in school uh, it could, could be better thought about, but instead they're really comfortable with asking people not only to work from home, but also care for their children at the same time. I mean, so many right. people are still expected to do their same jobs. Like those of us that are fortunate enough, that's how we're supposed to feel. We're fortunate enough to still do our jobs, but do them at home um, while we're also caring for our kids. I mean, it's just, it's, it's untenable, but I mean, we, in Alachua County anyway, the number of cases is, is quite low. Right. 
and and the um the social distancing uh has been pretty effective yeah uh yeah so uh but as far as the state in general goes i think mm-hmm. it's really still i i go to the website constantly i'm always going to the um the health department's website and the um the the, the state um, website and trying to find information. And early on, they were having like a, a sort of a chart that showed you every single case that was coming up and um, the age of the person that was getting it. I think there was like um, maybe like assigned sex or something. And then um, how they receive or how they got the virus or is, is it under investigation or is it travel related? And um, I noticed that that, that uh, chart has, sorry, I just touched my microphone, has not been, is no longer being updated. So early on, I thought that there was more information. I feel like there's less information over time, fewer updates. And, um, and so, for example, we got an update today that four students from the, from the University of Florida were tested positive for uh, the virus, right? for this coronavirus but the but all of our students many of our students have been sent home what wh- right. wherever home is or or and so none of that information was shared are these students that are actually in alachua county are these students wow. that are um in, in their in their home counties like there's just a lot of gaps in the information and i there's almost like a um a lack of trust in the public in a way, like as if we can't handle real information. That's how it feels sometimes. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that has been kind of the consensus of how the, you know, the federal government overall has handled it in the sense that they don't want to see the real numbers because I think once testing does go wide and I'm really hoping that it does after this package is approved, uh, in the Senate, um, what I want to know um, from you, and I just have only like one or two questions left, is you know obviously the CDC has given us some um, given us some advice about what to do. Um, do you think uh, besides the the hand washing and uh, using um, alcohol based hand sanitizer, if soap water is not available, um, how to cough and sneeze into a tissue or into your elbow or staying home or social distancing? Is there anything else that you can see doing? Like, do is there actual ways to boost your immune system if you're kind of um, already a decently healthy person? I know f- for some that are already having pre-existing conditions, that this is an extra scary time. But um, do you have any kind of like recommendations or advice on that? Well, kind of not fun ones when you're cooped up, but like smoking and drinking, I think are two things that you can stop doing if you're concerned particularly about a respiratory um, virus, right? So I think that's a a really important uh, way to to help your immune system is to not smoke or drink alcohol, which I think feels a little impossible when you're cooped up. I don't really know. But, um, and... uh, I, you know, I've been using like emergencies with zinc in them and I have tried to read some studies and I I haven't, I don't know that I've seen really good studies that show that um, with this particular novel coronavirus, what do we really know about it? All you can really use is your conventions about the other coronaviruses that we get all the time or with influenza or something like that, right? So all you can really do is make guesses because 
we have not, because this virus is novel, we have not really studied it, right? And right. so that, I mean, so things that you normally do to boost your, I mean, I mean, I've been going for walks and, um, you know, just trying to eat as healthy as I can. And, but I think those are just the, I think the answer to your question is no, I really don't know. No, I, I think a lot of people don't right now. And so you said there are other coronaviruses. Is this why the number, why we have a number assigned at the end of it, of, of out of COVID-19? Is that why it's called 19? Um, yeah, I mean, there's different, just like there's different strains of uh, influenza, right? We like, I, was it last year we saw H1N1 again? Now that's mm-hmm. called kind of like the regular boring old influenza is H1N1 now, you know, yeah, there's different strains of viruses and they are distinguished by their genetic markers or by differences in, in their, um, in their protein structures, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Or different um, antibody responses that they, they elicit. They're sometimes they're called serotypes, which means that they, um, they elicit a different collection of antibodies from animals that they're tested in or something like that. Um, right. So, yeah, so there, it's, we have we get coronaviruses. Coronaviruses are one of the common cold viruses, right? But this one just happens to be a, a new strain in humans. So, uh, and this is the last question I'll ask you: Why do you think some people still haven't really taken this this seriously? Like, if they kind of knew what you know, which is a lot, um, and thank you, you've been incredibly informative. Um, would they take it a little bit more seriously if they if they knew what you knew? You know, my thoughts on this is that people, um, we're taught this individualism in our society and we're not taught to think about um, what, you know, what can we do to make sure our neighbors are, are safe, you know? And so my thought is this, like no one in my house is really in this, um, in the group of people that are high risk, right? But right. I am not interested in being a part of the problem. Right. And so I'm willing to, you know, I'm complaining about my inconveniences. I know that people have significantly worse inconvenience than even what I'm experiencing, obviously. Right. Whether they're very sick or whether they are (laughs) reliant on their wage jobs and not able to get to work. Right. Or having to choose between caring for their kids or sending their kids to a daycare that they're not comfortable with and going to work. Right. So um, I, I people are making really tough choices. And if I can just stay out of it enough to flatten this, this, um, the, the spike in, in infectivity or in infection rates, then I, I feel like it's worth doing my part. But similarly, I would be interested in having some of my tax monies or whatever be used to have health care for every single person in the whole entire country. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's just the way it, we think, you know. Um, it almost reminds me, too, here in Florida, people don't like to wear, like, winter coats because they don't want to look cold. It's like this fear of looking to something, you know. I was like, I luckily have no shame whatsoever, so I don't mind looking too prepared or something like that. Well, I, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. This has been great. I learned a lot about it, so thank you for that. And, and I know that my audience will, too. I I think one of the things is people want to just know more what this is or how it forms or, you know, how it functions or why there are so many obstacles, you know? Um, so I appreciate it. And I don't know if you have any last thoughts. Otherwise, um, I, I thank you so much for, for doing this. 
I actually have two kind of parting thoughts and this has just yes. to do with having talked to like my friends or people in my community but like I think it's important to kind of learn like sort of the realities of this virus for example people are like worried about being reinfected right and mm -hmm. We have to be very skeptical about this kind of thing because what I've been reading is that viruses can have certain reservoirs or certain places in your body where they hide. So if you're having, so if your if your viruses are not hiding in your nasal passages or in your airways, and that's where the doctor swabs you to test you, then you may turn out negative, right? But right. you could still have the virus in you. And then if you present again with the virus, then they're like, oh, she was reinfected. What does reinfected really mean, right? right. Um, are you still just having that same virus, but it just was undetected and now it's detected again? So I just want people to be a little bit more skeptical about the things that they read, right? The other thing right. is how long does this, how long do these viruses really last on surfaces? There are, I think the CDC just put out some, um, or maybe it was the National Institutes of Health. I was just reading something where it's like it can, you know, some people are like, oh, it lasts for, you know, 10 days on things. No, it doesn't. It can last for a, a day. And the more porous um, or scratched or something is, the more places for the viruses to hide, the more they can stay in a wet enough environment to survive. But wow. on flat surfaces, they're not going to really last for more than a day or to, you know, however, just, I just want people to be logical with their preparation and, and to just, you know, when, if you can, right? Right. No, that makes, that makes absolute sense. And, you know, not to get to, I, I think people are, are, are incredibly worried about even just leaving their house at all. Some people that are, you know, feeling asymptomatic. Um, I'm not talking about going and gathering in crowds, but forgetting to go get fresh air, you know, during right. this time. You know, fresh air um, is perfectly fine. Yes, yes. Well, that's very good, dear, because I'm going to do that at some point today myself. <laughs> All right. So thank well, you. thank you so much. Yeah, thank I really you. enjoyed talking but, with you, Maya. And um, oh, yeah, always. This is Maya Contreras. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Obscene. Until next time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.